0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fireside Thoughts, where I ask controversial yet important questions and explain why I don't think the answers are so black and white. I also provide my own perspective on these topics based on in-depth research and reasoning and open up the floor to any counterpoints people may provide. So a little while back, I put out a post on my Instagram story asking listeners if they had any topics that they wanted me to cover, and almost everyone who responded, said that they wanted me to address the issue of gun control. And man, I thought defunding the police was a complicated topic, which granted it is, but I find gun control to be like 10 times more complicated. Uh, What I thought would just be a couple days of research turned into over a week of just scouring the internet for articles and reports and listening to TED Talks and debates, and I've just realized how many factors there are to consider when talking about gun restrictions. That being said, there's no way I can cover all of them in a 20-minute episode, but I will do my best to present the factors that I found most interesting and most compelling in order to answer the ever-important question of what should we do about gun control? Before I dive into this topic, I want to establish some common ground. First, I think everyone can agree that murder is wrong, no matter the weapon used. If you don't think that murder is wrong, then, um... Maybe this isn't the right place for you. Uh, Second, I think everyone can agree that self-defense, meaning defending oneself against a genuine threat to one's own life, is not the same as murder. Third, from what I've seen, it seems that both liberals and conservatives are against making fully automatic weapons legal, so I think that's also something we can all agree on. And finally, I think everyone understands that there are other ways to purchase guns outside of the boundaries of legal restrictions. Okay, with that aside, let's start investigating gun violence. First and foremost, we need to make sure that we have an accurate idea of what gun violence actually looks like in the United States. According to data compiled from the CDC and the Mother Jones mass shooting database, there were 39,740 deaths from firearms in the US in 2018. 61% of these deaths were from suicide, 35% were from homicide. 1% were from legal intervention, 1% were from unintentional killings, and 1% were from undetermined causes. Only 0.2% were from public mass shootings. Now, I know that the definition of mass shooting isn't really clear, so I looked at the Mother Jones mass shooting database to see what their criteria was. All of their mass shootings had at least three victims, including people who were injured and people who were killed. So for the purposes of this episode, I won't focus on suicide. Not because it's not an issue, it definitely is, but because I think it's a separate issue that requires an entirely different set of solutions. When it comes to mass shootings, I want to preface this by saying that each one is a tragedy and really should be treated as such. I know every time I hear about one in the news, I feel angry, I feel afraid, and I want to just do anything I can to make them stop. But sometimes acting on emotions can be really dangerous, and events like these spread fear throughout the entire country like wildfire. I know that after mass shootings are publicized, a lot of people genuinely fear leaving their own homes, afraid that they're going to be the next victims of a shooting. And so it's important to put things into the big picture again, only about 0.2% of firearm related deaths are at the hands of mass shooters representing about 80 people per year in a country of 328 million. So this puts your chances at being killed in one of these events at one in 4.1 million, which is a number that's really, really small. You are six times more likely to get killed by a meteorite than a mass shooter. So when pushing for gun control, we should acknowledge our emotions, but not allow them to cloud our judgment. Mass shootings, according to statistics, should be the last thing we focus on, not the first. What does catch my attention, however, and what I do really want to address is that 35% of firearm fatalities are from homicide. So that's mainly what I'll be addressing in this episode. It would also be kind of careless to talk about gun control without addressing the second amendment. And the Second Amendment states that a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I've heard some people point to this and say that owning a gun, therefore, is an indisputable human right, but I think it definitely goes much deeper than that. Most historians and linguists, at least from what I've read, agree that the Second Amendment was implemented to give the people the right to defend themselves. Whether it was meant to be against fellow citizens or a tyrannical government or both, well then there's disagreement. As for the finer details, some people insist that bearing arms means keeping a weapon on a person's body while others disagree, and people can't even agree on what kind of weapons the term arms includes. So while many will use the Second Amendment as evidence to back up their points, it's not exactly a very strong argument since that source of evidence can be interpreted in a multitude of different ways and is by no means self-evident. That being said, Second Amendment aside, I still think that the right to defend oneself should be a basic human right. And I think that includes from other people and also from an oppressive government. So does that mean that I'm against gun control? Well, Not necessarily, otherwise I would just end the episode right here. To truly determine whether gun control should be implemented or not, we first need to weigh the costs against the benefits of gun ownership in the United States. As I already stated earlier in this episode, 35% of gun deaths each year are from homicide, and that amounts to 13,909 gun homicides per year on average. For reference, according to a study published in the American Journal of Medicine, gun homicide rates are 25.2 times higher in the United States than in other high-income countries. Uh, One could make the argument that this figure doesn't attest the overall homicide rates in the US, which is entirely valid. But that same study also found that the overall homicide rates are seven times higher in the United States. On the flip side, based on sources compiled in a report by the National Research Council, firearms are used in self-defense anywhere between 60,000 and 2.5 million times per year. Now this is a huge, huge range, but even on the lowest end of that estimate, that's still over five times the number of firearm deaths every year. The two political parties in the United States are really good at looking at the same facts and drawing two entirely different conclusions from them. Uh, One could look at the high rate of gun violence and conclude that self-defense is more necessary than ever and as such we should equip our citizens with guns. And another could look at the fact that we are equipping our citizens with guns and say that it opens the door to more gun violence. Once again, the statistics show that gun violence is certainly an issue in the United States. I'm not going to argue with that, but it doesn't explain why. Some will point to the fact that Americans have more gun owners than anywhere else in the world. That is true, according to an article by BBC that places gun ownership per 100 people at over twice as high in the United States as the next highest civilian gun-owning country, which is Yemen. But while some people think that it's just common sense that more guns equals more gun violence, correlation does not necessarily imply causation. And Yemen, despite having half the amount of guns as in the US, has less than a quarter of the violent gun deaths as the US does. So clearly the number of guns is not the only factor at play here. So we cannot objectively frame the idea of Americans possessing guns as right or wrong. However, As we've already agreed upon hopefully, homicide is objectively wrong, and if there's a way to reduce the gun homicide rate in America, we should. So, let's take a look at a few of the major categories of gun control laws, which are background checks, concealed carry laws, and bans on semi-automatic weapons, and see whether they might aid in lowering homicide rates. Let's start with background checks, which are mainly meant to prevent people with a criminal record from purchasing firearms. A good way to analyze the effectiveness of this law is to take a look at weapons used in gun homicides and find out how many of them were purchased legally and how many were obtained illegally. Another way is to take a look at various states with different levels of gun control and see if there's any correlation to gun violence levels. Now it is painfully difficult to find reliable evidence of what percentage of gun violence is committed using legally obtained weapons. However, I was able to find a special report by the Department of Justice that surveyed state prison inmates who possessed a firearm while committing the crime they were arrested for. This data obtained in 1997 found that 80 percent of inmates who possessed a gun obtained it from a friend family member a street buy or an illegal source like the black market only two percent bought their guns from a gun show or a flea market and the remaining 12 percent purchased their gun from a retail store or pawn shop based on this data it doesn't seem like legally purchased weapons are the issue one could conclude that therefore background checks won't be effective but remember That's not the only data I was looking for. According to the CDC, the five states with the highest firearm death rates are Alaska, Mississippi, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Alabama. And according to the World Population Review, these states, with the exception of New Mexico, have the least strict gun laws. On the contrary massachusetts new york new jersey hawaii and rhode island all have the strictest gun laws but also the lowest firearm death rates i cross-referenced a bunch of laws relating to background checks to see if there were any laws that all five of the most restrictive states had yet none of the five of the most lenient states had three of the five states with the least gun homicides which are new jersey new york and rhode island implement something called universal background checks, which not only require licensed sellers to conduct background checks, something that's already a federal law, but also require private and unlicensed sellers to do the same. The other two states, Massachusetts and Hawaii, instead require all firearm purchasers to obtain a permit, which requires a background check, essentially accomplishing the same exact task on the flip side none of the five states with the highest gun homicide rates have universal background checks or permit laws with the exception of new mexico well jordan how do you explain new mexico then well funnily enough new mexico didn't implement its universal background check law until july 1st in 2019 Since that was less than two years ago, it's difficult to analyze how this new law has affected gun homicide rates since then. All of this is backed up by data that was compiled by Boston University, which showed that states with universal background checks had 3.3 homicides per 100,000 people, while states without universal background checks had 5.2 homicides per 100,000 people. Based on all of this data, I've come to believe that universal background checks are a vital part in promoting safe gun ownership. But what about concealed carry? Should people be allowed to keep their firearms hidden on their person? Well, to answer that question, we first need to know what levels of restrictions different states have for concealed carry. According to the USCCA, there are 41 states that implement a shall issue restriction on concealed carry. Essentially, this means that anyone who passes the necessary training and background checks is allowed to conceal their weapon on their person. The same source also lists the states that implement a may issue restriction on concealed carry. The may issue law means that even if a person were to pass all of the training and the background checks, they could still be denied permission to conceal their weapon at the discretion of local authorities. Oftentimes, states with may issue laws require that a person provide a justifiable reason for needing to conceal their weapon, and self defense is usually not considered one of those justifiable reasons. There have also been a lot of cases where authorities don't even explain why they are denying someone's right to conceal their weapon. So which laws seem to be most effective and which seem to fail? A report from the RAND corporation that looked at dozens of different studies found that the shall issue concealed carry laws may increase violent crime, but they also make it really clear that the evidence for this correlation is very limited. The same report also found inconclusive results when looking at firearm homicides specifically. There are also multiple studies that contradict each other in the results, so no clear conclusion can be drawn. However, according to an article by the Heritage Foundation, the concept of a quote-unquote concealed carry killer is a complete myth. Of all gun homicides that occur every year, only 0.7% of them are committed by concealed carry permit holders. To me, it seems like focusing on implementing laws that prevent concealed carry isn't really the right priority when it comes to gun control and that even if legislation was passed that made it harder or illegal to possess a concealed weapon, that it wouldn't really do much to change the homicide rates in America. On the contrary, my common sense says that someone carrying a weapon out in the open is much more likely to be perceived as a threat, and as such is more likely to be treated as one, which is really dangerous if everyone possesses a weapon. In my last episode, I discussed police reform and how police are very often trained to react to threats with force and that would just be amplified if everyone was carrying weapons out in the open. Moving on, I think the third major category of gun control addresses the issue of which guns people are allowed to buy. Many people make the case that a lot of firearm-related deaths happen at the hands of semi-automatic or automatic assault rifles, and that there's no need for ordinary citizens to possess weapons of that caliber. The facts actually say otherwise. According to an FBI database compiling information from 2015 to 2019, 65% of all gun homicides were from handguns, while only 3% were from rifles, 2% were from shotguns, and 1% were from other types of guns. I know, I know, the percentages don't actually add up, but the remainder of that were unidentified, firearm types and making any sort of claim about those weapons would be an appeal to ignorance which is a logical fallacy we can also study the effect of laws that ban semi-automatic weapons by looking at the assault rifle ban that was implemented by the federal government from 1994 to 2004 and an article published in JAMA Internal Medicine found that that law had no significant effect on decreasing total gun homicides. Furthermore, according to an article in the Seattle Times, assault weapons account for 24.6% of mass shootings, dating all the way back to 1982. So even as extremely rare as mass shootings are, the use of assault weapons isn't all that common, even among mass shootings. As for the claim that ordinary citizens don't need semi-automatic weapons, I would agree when it comes to defending against a fellow citizen. But also remember that the Founding Fathers were very aware that any government could turn tyrannical, just as theirs had. Throughout history we've seen it happen again and again, with countries like France and Germany, and don't forget the military coup that happened in Myanmar recently. I believe the Founding Fathers wanted the citizens of the United States to be prepared to defend themselves against the government if it were to turn tyrannical, and handguns just aren't enough to do that. So while I agree that semi-automatic weapons are not necessary now, they very well may be in the future. So I agree, there's no need to really carry assault rifles out in the open, and that's why I don't really see a problem with implementing legislation that restricts open carry for assault rifles. I simply don't think it's absolutely necessary given the low rates of gun homicides at the hands of those weapons, as well as the historical failure of these sorts of laws to actually make a difference when it comes to gun homicides. I do believe, however, that banning all semi-automatic weapons would be unconstitutional so long as those weapons remain in one's home and not out in the open. I do acknowledge that it's possible to modify your semi-automatic weapon to make it essentially a fully automatic weapon and I think that that's when it becomes way too dangerous to be used at all and as I think we stated before everyone can agree that fully automatic weapons should be banned and so um, any modification to a semi-auto that would make it a full auto should also be banned. Here's what I believe the issue is with a lot of gun control measures in the more strict states. I'll divide the different laws into two categories pre-purchase and post-purchase. Now, pre-purchase laws include background checks, extensive training, and psychological evaluations, while post-purchase laws include limitations on which guns can be used, as well as concealed carry laws. I'm entirely in favor of pre-purchase laws, let me just be clear, because all of them happen before granting the citizen the right to own a firearm. That makes sense. You don't want criminals or psychopaths, buying guns. It's, it's just a no-brainer. I'm also in favor of requiring licenses and permits when purchasing guns. Um, I, f- I feel like that also makes sense. Take cars, for example, in an analogy posed by one of my friends. Um, a car is meant to get you to, from point A to point B, but it can also be very dangerous to operate. And uh, cars actually kill less people each year than guns do. So for a car... You need to go through 30 hours of coursework and take 12 hours of like road testing. At least that's how it is in Massachusetts and only then can you get your license. And I guess the question is why would it be any different with a firearm, which is equally, if not more harmful than a car, but the existence of post-purchase laws, which again includes concealed carry laws and bans on semi-automatic weapons implies that the government doesn't fully trust the citizen, even if they've already passed all the tests. If you don't trust your own system to catch people right up front before they purchase the weapon, then why not strengthen that system instead of trying to restrict them every step of the way after they've purchased the gun. So Jordan, are you saying that we should make it legal for citizens to do whatever they want with their guns? By your logic, should it be legal to murder someone with those weapons since it's after the purchase? Or should it be legal to give their guns to someone else who will do something harmful? No, obviously not. To quote philosopher Herbert Spencer, each has freedom to do all that he wills, provided that he infringes not on the equal freedom of any other. Now, murder obviously infringes on the right of another person to live and therefore should not be allowed. I'm definitely not advocating for that. And similarly, giving your rightfully owned firearm to a criminal also infringes on equal rights, since that criminal has not gone through the same process as everyone else. But you concealing your weapon or simply owning an AR-15 not infringing on anyone else's rights. So when I talk about post-purchase laws, I'm only referring to the laws that don't directly affect anyone else except for the person owning the gun. So for instance, I still think it should be illegal to give your firearm to someone who hasn't passed the psych evals and the background tests and the training. Um, If you lose your weapon or misplace it, I think you need to report it to make sure it's not used against someone else in a harmful manner. So I think that with the right of owning a gun also comes the responsibility of making sure that it's not used in any way to infringe on anyone else's rights. Well, Jordan, you might ask, what if someone changes? Without post-purchase laws, how can the government ensure that citizens remain trustworthy without directly restricting them? Good point. I present to you red flag laws. Quoting from the White House itself, red flag laws allow family members or law enforcement to petition for a court order temporarily barring people in crisis from accessing firearms if they present a danger to themselves or others. Implementing nationwide red flag laws would not only reduce the government's need to impose restrictions on law-abiding citizens, but would also foster a sense of accountability from one's own community. Red flag laws align with one of the key principles of the criminal justice system, a person is innocent unless proven guilty. So in conclusion, I believe that there is a problem with gun violence in the United States but that it's not necessarily caused by the fact that there are more guns in the United States. I think that the solution is to increase restrictions on who can purchase guns, not which guns they can purchase or what they can do with those guns. I believe that our current priorities with gun control are misplaced and that readjusting them may lead to lower gun violence rates in the United States of America. So those are my thoughts on gun control. Going into this, I had no idea how complex the topic was going to be, and there's still so much more to learn. I've really only scratched the surface of the issue at hand and encourage all of you to do some of your own research and form your own opinions. The research alone for this episode took around 16 hours, so it would mean the world to me if you could share this podcast with the people around you. Make sure to send me your thoughts and counterpoints via Instagram DM or at firesidethoughtspodcast at gmail.com, and I will create a follow-up episode discussing some of the best points I've received. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many other platforms in addition to Instagram, so make sure to check it out there as well. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I'll see you all in the next one. Bye, guys.